0: welcome into another episode of the cali green monster show i'm your host dean ryan coming to you from the tesla studios here in beautiful sunny san diego california it is a monday morning coming here off a fresh off a weekend march 29th 2021 let's make this one a good day for y'all you got a packed show today you know there's a lot of there's some days you come into this Maybe there's not much in the sports world or just the world in general to talk about, but this is not one of those days. This is one of those days where it was like, all right, some things are just going to hit the cutting room floor. So I'm definitely going to be talking about last Friday before or after I recorded Friday's show, we got a pretty big trade that went down between the 49ers and the Dolphins. And so we're going to talk about that trade that went down and how that affects this upcoming draft in May. We're going to be talking a little bit about the Sweet or the Sweet 16 that just happened in this past weekend and the upcoming Elite Eight games that are happening tonight and tomorrow. We had a huge UFC heavyweight championship match between Stipe Miocic and Francis Ngannou. I'm going to highlight that and a few other of the matchups that happened on Saturday's UFC 260. And then I'm also going to review the Mighty Ducks television show that debuted on Disney Plus. The first episode came in on Friday, so that's your first spoiler alert. So I'm going to talk about all these things, all in today's show. So let's hopefully, uh, my vocal cords are ready, hopefully I don't, my, my throat's not too dry. Got myself a double latte that I got from the, the works coffee machine, and I'm ready to fucking go. So as I mentioned on Friday, the 49ers made a trade with the Miami Dolphins, and they traded to get the Miami Dolphins' third overall pick in this upcoming draft. They basically had to give up a lot for that, so they had to give up their first-round tr- draft pick this year, which was the 12th overall. They're also giving up first-round draft picks in 2022 and 2023, and they're also giving up a third-round draft pick in 2022, 2022 so in that third round draft pick that they're giving up in 2022 apparently that was a compensatory pick that was originally from the new york jets and san francisco got that draft pick when the new york jets signed um, their coach sala for for, to be their head coach so you know all that's going to miami and miami wasted a little time they took that draft pick and they flipped it to move back into the top 10 of the draft this year so they took that 12th overall pick that they got from san francisco and then they also took their 2021 fourth round pick which is the 123rd overall pick and next year's or a 2022 first round pick so they gave up those to the eagles to get to to jump up to six overall so you know they you know, they gave up basically the third overall draft pick. And at the end of the day, w- with a few other moves, wound up with the sixth overall draft pick. You know, so what does that mean for the teams involved? You know, the 49ers jumping up to the third overall, you have to imagine that they're going to go for one of the quarterbacks that's available. You know, Jimmy G's their current quarterback. And although going into the off season, there was a lot of rumors that they might have gotten rid of his contract or tried to move on from him all you know by all accounts or everything that we've been hearing so far out of San Francisco is that they're not trying to get rid of Jimmy G so at least they, they envision him being at least their starting quarterback going into the 21 21 season. But I also, that doesn't mean that they're not going to bring in another quarterback and moving up to the third overall pick. That almost guarantees that they're going to go after somebody, whether that somebody is BYU Zach Wilson, whether it's Ohio State's Justin Fields, whether it's Mac Jones from Alabama, whether there's Trey Lance from North Dakota State. There's definitely a lot of quarterbacks to be had in this draft class, so I I imagine that the 49ers are going to try to go after one of these guys, and that at some point in this upcoming season, or for the 2022 season, having a new quarterback, and then Jimmy G either assuming the backup role or moving on somewhere else. You know, there's people thinking that the New England Patriots might be in the marker for Jimmy Garoppolo, you know, since he came from New England and was someone that Bill Belichick drafted. But, you know, I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo hasn't been, you know, he hasn't been that available over these past couple of years. He's been, you know, pretty injury prone, so missed a lot of games over these past couple of years. And he doesn't really protect the ball all that great. So, I think if the, if it's the option between bringing in Jimmy G or Cam Newton that they've re-signed for $14 million this year, I think New England is, might as well just go with Cam Newton, a guy who's already spent a year in the system. And I think that I'm anticipating a bounce-back season from Cam Newton, especially with having weapons to actually be surrounded with. So, And then you look at the Dolphins. They're probably going to bring in something to help Tua. You know, last year Tua was his rookie season. And although there was a lot of people that weren't impressed, it's like you got to take into things, you know, certain things into account. He was coming off a devastating injury that, you know, I think it was something similar that Bo Jackson had in the early 90s. And that ended his football career. So, you know, it wasn't even a year removed from major hip surgery and coming back from that so I think there's a lot of people hoping or anticipating that Tua is going to be able to bounce back in the second season and I think the best way to find out if Tua is your guy is to be able to bring in some weapons around to help him so whether that be some wide receivers like LSU's Jamar Chase there's the, the Alabama wide receivers Jalen Waddle and Devonte Smith you know, whether maybe they don't want to go wide receiver, maybe they want to go for a big tight end, have almost like a Travis Kelsey or George Kittle type. You know, there's Florida's Kyle Pitts, who's very highly touted that a lot of people think will go in the top 10. And, you know, maybe they don't want to go wide receiver or tight end, like a weapon that Tua can use, but maybe a weapon to actually protect to uh, so maybe they go for tackle Pinay Sewell from Oregon. You know, a lot of people think that he's a generational ta- uh, tackle, so you know, I think any one of the five guys that I just ran down is someone that the Dolphins are probably going to use their the six overall draft pick on. So, you know, in Miami also, they've got not just the 6th overall draft pick, they've got the 18th overall draft pick, and they've also got two second rounds, so they've got the 36th overall and the 50th overall. So, you know, the Dolphins is definitely a team that I felt like was definitely trending up last year, and... You know, they have the potential with, you know, all these draft picks that they've accumulated this year. And I think they even have a couple first-rounders over the next couple of years. So, you know, Miami's definitely a franchise to keep your eye on. And if they make smart decisions in the draft and Tua can somehow work out, Miami's definitely a franchise to be looking out. And I think Buffalo and New England will have some stiff competition in the, the AFC East. All right, so switching out of football... March Madness was going on still. This weekend, it was the Sweet 16. You know, the the matchup that kind of sticks out in my mind from this past weekend that I was able to catch a you know a little chunk of was the number two Alabama versus number eleven UCLA. You know, UCLA was a team that had to play into the tournament. You know, they had to play against Michigan State to even have the right to join the field of sixty four. And Alabama was a team that I was pulling for because I had put them or I selected them into my final four up until yesterday. My hopes for my bracket to actually do good. 're still and you know pretty strong all my final four picks were still in the tournament I had Gonzaga, I had number two Alabama, I had number two Houston and number one Baylor all going to the final four. They were all still in it and then yesterday I was hanging out with my family. I popped into the apartment and caught the last like 30 seconds of, of regulation of the Alabama and UCLA game and it was pretty insane. I thought Alabama had it. They were up by one, but if there's anything, you can learn from watching college basketball and especially around March Madness time and especially this past year or this past, you know, month, past couple of weeks is that these games can flip like multiple times just over in the last minute. So for example, you know, Alabama had a one-point lead, UCLA had possession. They drive to the hoop, get a basket. They go up by one. You know, Alabama's possession now. They immediately drive to the hoop, get a foul. So all Alabama has to do is hit one free throw to tie it, or two to take the lead, and the guy breaks both free throws, and the UCLA then follows up by making their next two free throws. So they're up by three points, and I'm just kind of like, God damn it, Alabama! You know, rolled tie my ass. So why did he even go with you? There's still 4.8 seconds left. They call a timeout. They in the ball. They inbound the ball from their own end. Throw it up. Dude jacks up a three nails it. It was freaking awesome. I, You could definitely hear everyone in my apartment complex, or at least in the apartments around my apartment complex, probably heard a nice primal yell coming from the Cali Green Monsters apartment. My wife and son, who were outside kind of playing in the bushes, just not too far away from my apartment, definitely heard me celebrate. So, definitely the anyone that was watching the game at that time probably knew that I would put Alabama to go through or at least I was rooting for Alabama although that you know that jubilation was short-lived because UCLA ended up kicking their ass in overtime so you know UCLA moved on to the elite eight and it's just kind of Another strong showing from Pac-12 teams. They're one of three Pac-12 teams that are going to be in the Elite Eight, along with USC and Oregon State. So the Elite Eight, it starts tonight. We've got number two, Houston, versus number 12, Oregon State. So Oregon State has been on a run. Like I said, I on this past couple shows and over the past shows that I've been covering March Madness, I feel like I've just given – Oregon State kind of like the kiss of luck by making them the only 12 seed that I didn't pick to move out of the first round. And look at this. They're on a run and now in the Elite Eight. So it's a pretty impressive run by Oregon State. I'm hoping that number two, Houston, will be able to stop them. I have Houston going to the national championship game. So I think even if I'm not going to win my group's bracketology, it would just be some nice satisfaction or a nice consolation prize to at least have picked you know, at least a national championship, right? I'm hoping that Gonzaga will meet them there. I have Gonzaga winning the whole thing and finishing the season undefeated. They're going to be playing number six, USC, tomorrow. We've got number one, Baylor, versus number three, Arkansas, as the second game tonight. And then tomorrow evening is the kind of the main event of the Elite Eight. We've got number one, Michigan, versus number 11, UCLA. You know, UCLA is the first team that had to play into the tournament to make the elite eight since 2011 and that was vcu so it's been a pretty impressive run from ucla someone that i had originally thought michigan state was going to win that game and get into the tournament instead of ucla but here we are and i think this is the first time in both ucla and usc's history that both of them are on the elite eight in the same year so that's pretty crazy if you're a college basketball fan in southern california you know the two biggest teams are in the elite 8 so we'll see how they they handle and you know it'd be pretty cool if they both got into the final 4 something that i don't know i wouldn't really have anticipated and really grown up anticipated because when i think of usc i think of them more as a football school as a basketball school but you know they've definitely got a pretty good team this year they played some pretty good defense and shutting down oregon yesterday so yeah, we'll see how USC and UCLA winds up, and yeah, we'll keep an eye on these games over the next two nights. All right, time to move on to some UFC talk. UFC 260 was this past Saturday, headlined by a heavyweight title rematch between Francis Ngannou and Stipe Miocic. I'm going to talk about that fight, but first I want to talk about a couple of fights leading up to that. You know, the third fight on the main card was Sugar Sean O'Malley and Thomas Almeida. It was a a fight at 135 pounds, and Sugar Sean O'Malley, he lived up to the hype, and he came out and looked extremely dominant, looked crisp, and definitely lived up to the hype. I think he definitely kind of helped wipe our memories clean of his last performance where, you know... Pretty much a, a calf kick, kind of, you know, deadened his leg and kind of ruined his night a little early, and you know, stopped the sugar show at least for the time being. But he definitely answered on Saturday night. He looks so much better than Thomas Almeida. You know, Thomas Almeida was someone that you know he comes out of the Shootbox Academy in Brazil. That's some. That's a very famous you know kickboxing MMA gym in Brazil. You know Wanderlei Silva, is someone you know, very famous coming out of there, so they're guys that are known to brawl, they're guys that are known to bring it day in and day out, and, you know, he was tough as shit, you know, in the first round, Sugar uh, Sean O'Malley, you know, knocked him down and tried to do basically one of those walk-off wins, but Almeida was able to recover and keep fighting, but it did just seem like, you know, although he was tough, He just didn't seem to be on O'Malley's level. O'Malley seemed to be bigger. He seemed to be quicker. His his attack seemed to be more more creative, more unorthodox. It was just you know it was exciting to watch. You know watching him fight it kind of reminded me of like when he first started watching Conor McGregor when he would debut or some of the unorthodox striking of a young John Jones. So he's definitely you know Sean O'Malley is a star. He, you know, he talks the talk. He comes in, he walks the walk. You know, he says that it's only a couple times a year that he actually gets to perform in front of like a live audience. You know, it's only a couple times a year that the sugar show really comes. So he wants to make it impressive, and impressive he did. You know, in the third round, it was pretty funny. The commentator teams at first they were talking about how you know sean o'malley missed his opportunity to finish the fight and he was on his way to a unanimous decision victory so they're talking about like how next time he can't miss his opportunity to finish a fight and then they proceeded to talk about how, how tough thomas almeida is and how he's was really tough to put away and you know the next thing you know o'malley puts him down you know and It looked like he was about to do the walk off again. He was just like, didn't have a sense of urgency, but the ref didn't step in. And then, boom, O'Malley comes in with just like a big right that Almeida didn't even do anything to really defend himself. So he was already out from the initial shot to put him down. And then it's funny. So, like, early in the round, the UFC commentators are talking about how you know, he has to be able to finish his fights. He can't be doing these walk-offs. And then when he proceeds to do the walk-off, they're like, oh man, that was such an unnecessary shot. Oh man, the ref probably should have stopped it. And it's almost like you could see like the look on O'Malley's face. He was just so calm and cool the entire time. Even in victory, he just seemed so chill. Like when Bruce, Bruce Buffer was announcing the decision after he just seemed calm cool and collected it almost seemed like his coaches in his corner were like more hyped and like losing their composure where like an you know, O'Malley was just chills a cucumber so definitely impressive I enjoyed the fight you know what's next for him you know there's a lot of people calling out maybe he should run it back with Marlon Chitovera you know that that's a fight that he still touts that he doesn't think he lost he feels like it was a freak injury so to him he still feels like an undefeated fighter i think he was even throwing up the zeros when he was getting announced so you know it's still it's a cool gimmick and i think it'd be cool to see him run it back but if we're looking for a fresh face for Sean o'malley to fight and maybe a top 10 dude because i think he definitely should you know fight a top 10 guy to see what you know if he's you know, not just a s you know, a star when fighting some of the like the bottom part of the top fifteen. Let's see if you can fight a t like a more you know, a tougher dude, a more well seasoned dude. And I'm thinking, uh, Marlon Mraz. you know, I always forget how to say his last name. I don't know if it's Moroz or Moro Moraes. I think it might be Moraes. That's how it's spelt, you know, and he's coming off two straight TKO losses to Sanhagen and Rob Font. So I think a a matchup between O'Malley and Moraes would be, you know, electric. You know, if I had a dream matchup, I was telling my wife, I was like, if if somehow O'Malley and Conor McGregor could meet at a catch weight, I mean, they have similar looking tattoos. They have really cool unorthodox striking. So, I mean, if if I was doing dream booking, that's what I would do. But, you know, I think a, a rematch with Cheeto Vera or, or Marez is something that I'd like to see. In the co-main event, Vicente Luque, he submitted Tyron Woodley with a Darce choke. You know, Tyron Woodley, that was his fourth loss in a row. You know, I have to admit, he did look really good. The commentator team was talking about how good he looked. It was the most aggressive Tyron Woodley you, norm- you would see. He's normally a dude that seems to be kind of sitting back, more reserved, kind of waiting for something to happen. But he was really attacking. He was really throwing really powerful rights that I feel like any one of those that would have landed on Luke could have knocked him out. And, you know, I, he was looking good until he didn't. You know, he got clipped on his chin, and from that point on, he was, like, on ice skates, wobbling, and, you know, you got to give him credit. He stood on his feet, and he was exchanging with Luque, and it took a while for him to finally go down, but when he did, you know, Luke, it's like, when he was putting in the Darce choke, it was weird because it looked like he was doing it in slow motion and it was, it almost looked like it was jujitsu class. And he was trying to learn the d'arce choke because he was like, it wasn't like the slick, like, Oh, he's got him in the d'arce choke and it's over. It almost looked like he was taking his time positioning the d'arce choke. And Woodley was so out of it from, you know, just all the shots he took on his feet. It didn't look like he was really defending it that much. And the next thing you know, it was, it was tight. And, you know, by the time Woodley was trying to roll and get out of it, it was too late. And, you know, Luke, Submitted him. <clears throat> looked really impressive. You know, in the press conference after the fight, Dana White all but confirmed that Tyron Woodley's probably going to be cut. You know, when asked about Tyron Woodley's future, the reporter that asked Dana White was like, you know, Tyron looked pretty good out there. Even though it's his fourth loss, he looked pretty good up until, you know, the end of the fight. So what does the future have for Tyron Woodley? And Dana White just kind of shook his head. It was like, you know, what, how old is he? He's going to be turning 39. You know, that was his fourth in a row. Come on. like, And that's what he said. And, I mean, so, I mean, it's I think it's only a matter of time before, you know, we get that headline from our Bleacher Report app or MMA Junkie or wherever you get your MMA news that we're probably going to get word that Tyron Woodley's been released. Now, will that mean he's going to retire or if he's going to go, you know, to Bellator or one of the other organizations? Only time will tell. But uh, it looks like... His time in the UFC is probably done. And, you know, for Vicente Luque, what's up next for him? I think there's there's tons of options at Welterweight. You know, I looked at a list of, you know, some of the top Welterweight guys that don't have matchups left. And, you know, we got names like Leon Edwards, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, Michael Chiesa, Colby Covington. All these dudes are top guys that need a dance partner. And Luque, I think, would fit the bill. But he came out after his fight in his interview with Joe Rogan and asked for a fight with Nate Diaz. He says Nate Diaz is someone that's called him out in the past, and he would like that fight to happen. And I'm definitely one of those people that I will never say no to a Nate Diaz fight or a Nate Diaz suggestion. So if he's not going to fight any one of the active 170-pound guys that are in the top 10, dude, bring on Nate Diaz. I think that'll be a hell of a fight and something I'd be worth uh, watching on a pay-per-view. And in the main event, we've got a new baddest, baddest man in the world. Francis Ngannou took out Stepe Miocic in the second round with a brutal KO. And he looked really impressive doing it. You know, a lot of talk was going to be, you know, in their first matchup in January 2018, Stipe Miacic was able to survive the storm in the first round and then be able to drag Francis into deep waters using his wrestling. And, you know, he was basically beat up Francis Ngannou for the entire 25 minutes. And a lot of people were wondering, has Francis done enough over the past three-plus years to get himself ready for Stepe Miocic? And I think he answered with an emphatic, yes, he has. He looks super scary. I thought, you know, one of the things with the fight or one of the main factors in the fight would be the small cage. That was something that the commentator team was mentioning. You know, the, the cage at the Apex Center is 30% smaller than the cage that would be in a normal arena. So Stipe, who, you know, weighed in about thirty pounds less than Francis and Ganu, his only chance was gonna be able to circle away, stay away from Francis and be able to try to take him down. So honestly in the small cage, it looked like circling away from him wasn't gonna be an option. It was only going to be a matter of time before Francis was able to start tagging him with some big shots. So it really left the only option after that would be to try to land some takedowns and control the fight on the ground. But when Francis Ngannou was able to sprawl, stuff the takedown, and then proceed to swing and take Stepe's back and start landing shots... You kind of knew, oh shit, this is a different fight. And in my head, I felt like Stipe was fucked. Like, I mean, when when Ganu started throwing those those hammer punches and those fists from the you know from his back, I thought it was gonna be done right there. So to give Stipe all the credit in the world, he is tough as shit. He has got a chin. He took a couple shots just in that you know the short amount of time that that fight was going on. He took some shots that no other dude could. So all the props to Stipe you know but in the you know second round Francis just kept his calm it wasn't like he was trying to expend a lot of energy to try to finish the fight he just kept his composure he was able to put Stipe down and when Stipe came back up he was able to clip Francis once and you know it kind of looked like Francis may have stumbled but I don't think he was really hurt Stipe thought you know just kind of charged forward and Francis was able to tag him with the left, put him down. You know, he full fo- steep, folded up like an accordion. Francis was able to do one more follow-up shot and-, and it was over. You know, Francis looked incredible. You know, he looked huge. You know, the fact that he looked like he was just able to keep his composure was calm looked like he was ready for this fight to go later if it needed to. And his wrestling looked really great. You know, he'd been training with Kamaru Usman, who's one of the best MMA wrestlers in the game and probably one of the best MMA wrestlers of all time. He had him in his corner, and you could definitely tell that that played dividends. And, you know, for instance, Ngannou, he's now the third active African-born UFC champion right now in addition to you know Kamaru Usman and Israel Adesanya I remember when Adesanya was on Joe Rogan's podcast a few years ago he was talking about how there's so many good fighters coming out of Africa and they're you know that some of the best athletes in the world come out of Africa and that it's only a matter of time before they start running the MMA scene and you look at it and you know there's three of the most prominent champions in the UFC today are African born, you know, so congratulations to African MMA. Congratulations to Francis Nganu. And he mentioned after the fight that he's hoping for the first ever UFC pay-per-view or event in Africa. And he's hoping sometime soon. And I imagine with, three active champions, that would be an amazing card if they could set up, you know, all three guys on the same card somewhere in Africa. I don't know if it'd be in Nigeria where Usman and Adesanya are from or you do it in Cameroon or do you do it in one of the the old World Cup soccer stadiums in South Africa. So it'd be pretty cool to see what they set up there and and kind of interesting to see over the next couple of years the, the type of fighters that are going to come out of that continent. So, you know, what's next for Francis Ngannou? There's two names that I think that are being brought up. You know, the first name being brought up, I think, is the one that we're all hoping to see. is John Jones. John Jones! You know, John Jones the GOAT. You know, he was unstoppable at 205. No one was able to take the belt off him. He had to basically relinquish the belt. So, you know, while well, he relinquished the belt because he wanted to focus on power lifting and putting on the muscle mass and get his frame up to the size and be ready for heavyweight. I don't know if he knew when he was deciding to make this <clears throat> jump to heavyweight that he was going to be ended up having to face a monster like Francis and Ganu, But by all accounts, it seems like he's wanting to do it. You know, he tweeted out at first, show me the money, which I don't know if that's like honestly a full endorsement that he wants to fight. That almost kind of seems like a a way a way for him to get out of the fight. You know, maybe, like, hey, I told them to pay me and they didn't want to pay me the money. So that's why I'm not fighting him. You know, Chelson didn't even mention that. Like, oh, that's a tweet of a guy that doesn't want the fight. But he also did follow up tweets like, you know, let's play. And I didn't put on all this weight for nothing. So that's definitely something <laughs> that i'm hoping will happen it's one of those things that's almost like it's too good to be true i was telling my wife yesterday i was like i know i'm being hyperbolic but i swear john jones versus francis and would be the greatest fight of all time you know and it might be it might be one of the big most hyped fights of all time you know i think there's something about heavyweights that capture the imagination and i think the idea of john jones you know someone that a lot of people consider the greatest of all time versus someone like Francis Ngannou, someone that hasn't, you know, I don't think we've seen it as intimidating as a heavyweight since, you know, maybe when Brock Lesnar burst onto the scene or maybe a fully steroided Al- Alistair Overeem. So, you know, it's going to be exciting. Every time Francis Nganu's on the card, I think there's, you know, it's going to be must buy, you know, what they were trying to hype him up as the most exciting and dangerous heavyweight person since Mike Tyson. And, you You know, he's living up to the billing because every time he goes in, it's just, you know, the UFC sets these dudes up and he knocks them down. So whether it be Jon Jones or, you know, Derek Lewis, Derek Lewis is another name that people are bringing up. He's the last dude to beat Francis Ngannou. And, you know, even though he beat him, it wasn't the most impressive fashion. It was, it was a fight that both guys seemed to be respecting each other's power. You know, Derek Lewis has the most knockouts in UFC heavyweight history with twelve. Francis Ngannou is right behind him with 10, so if they don't set up the John Jones matchup, I'd love to see Francis and Derek Lewis get after it and give us the match that we were all hoping for the first time and, you know, disappointingly didn't get when we did watch him first lock horns. so, you know, I'm expecting Ngannou to fight Jones or Derek Lewis next. And Stipe... Not sure what's gonna be happening with him next. I think a lot of people are almost talking about him that as if he should retire. You know, he's 38 years old and he's been in some wars. You know, he had an epic trilogy with Daniel Cormier, but you know, in the first matchup with that he got knocked out. This knockout was pretty brutal. You know, I had a buddy of mine that said he's not gonna be talking right for a while after that, and he probably won't be. So but also at the same time I feel like Stipe, he's the greatest heavyweight of UFC history. You know, you could argue is the greatest heavyweight of all time. I think people would argue that maybe Fedor was, is the greatest heavyweight of all time. But, you know, Stipe's right up there with him, and at least in the conversation. So while he has been in some wars and he's getting up there in age, he'll be 39 in August. He's earned the right to make the decision himself. So, you know, if he wants to come back and try to challenge for the belt, I, I mean it's almost hard to deny it. I mean, not many heavyweight champions have even been able to defend the belt once. And he's been able to defend it multiple times. So, you know, I think he's earned the right to, if he wants to come back, but if he does want another piece of Francis, it's got to be after a while, he's going to need some time to recover from that. And honestly, if I was his friend or family or manager, someone giving him advice, I just don't see anything good coming out of another matchup with Francis and Ganu. It's like, he went in the first time, You know, he got out of there, you know, mostly unscathed, uh, but this time he wasn't so lucky. And I'm afraid what a third encounter with Francis Ngannou would do, I think Francis Ngannou, he, you know, when you think about it, the amount of time he spent in the cage isn't relatively that much long compared to a lot of other people. He seems to only be getting better. And, yeah, I just don't see anything good happening from Stipe, so me i feel like he's got nothing left to prove so if that was the last time we saw steep fight you know i think good for him you know go enjoy your family i think he's got a son or a child that's going to be born soon it's like go enjoy your you know your family go enjoy being a fireman you know you're one of the goats of all time and you got nothing left to prove so you know only time will tell but overall ufc 260 was a great card if you can somehow try to go find those last three fights, I would highly, you know, recommend checking them out because, you know, hey, watching knockouts and aggressive dudes going after it—that's what UFC is all about, and that's what UFC 260, you know, brought us. All right, so before I end this, you know, pretty long Monday show of a Cali Green Monster show, I want to cover and review the Mighty Ducks Game Changers. That's the new show that's out on Disney Plus. I. Episode 1 came out last Friday. I watched it on Friday morning, and I told you on Friday's episode that it was pretty good, but I wanted to give everyone a chance to watch it. So if you haven't watched Mighty Ducks Game Changers and are looking forward to watching it, here's your spoiler alert. If you haven't watched it but don't really give a shit and maybe you want to hear about it, you know, how I'm going to talk about it. And maybe you just don't even give a shit about Mighty Ducks Game Changers and this is where you turn off the podcast. If so, Aww. but, you know... <laughs> Here we go. So right off the bat it just shows it it opens up with, you know, the the Mighty Ducks home rink. It's an ice ring right away. It was the Hendrix pavilion. And for those of you who are a fan of the mighty ducks franchise and mighty ducks 2, Hendrix was their sponsor when they played for team USA and they were all corporate and Gordon Bombay had to do all those photo shoots. It was, it was for Hendrix hockey. So right away, I thought that was a cool, it was a nice throwback. And that's what made me get my notepad. out. I was like, Hey, I'm going to take notes on this because there might be a bunch of little Easter eggs from the mighty ducks. So, you know, right away it's, you know, the mighty ducks, it's their opening season. And it's these, Two little kids who are podcasting, and you know, as a as an amateur podcaster myself, I thought that was a nice uh, nice addition to the show. So there's these two little kids are podcasters, and they kind of given us up to speed from the last time we saw the Mighty Ducks in '97. They are now considered a powerhouse franchise in Minnesota hockey. They're ten times state national championships in Minnesota, so that's pretty impressive considering that Minnesota is one of the you know preeminent hockey states. Or Parts of the country where hockey's big, so to be 10-time national or state championships, that's a big deal. You know, right away, the main kid's mom, you know, I call him New Charlie Conway. I forget what his name is. It might be Alex, but I'm just going to call him New Charlie. You know, his mom's a paralegal, so I feel like that's a shout-out to Bombay. You know, Gordon Bombay was a lawyer, so, you know, of course, all the adults in the Mighty Duck universe, it's like if you're an adult, you're going to be a lawyer or at least a paralegal or something like that. You know, the podcasters, they mention, oh, like, these ducks are completely different. It's like, the, the ducks in the 90s, apparently they quacked and, like, they laughed about it. So, you know, they're already establishing that these aren't, you know, the ducks aren't the the same kitty-friendly ducks. If anything, they seem to be right away kind of being more reminiscent of the hawks, you know, the bad guys from the first movie. They seem to be the good guys, you know, the, the probably the rich kids, the... The kids that you know have all the coaching, all the best gear, so that seems to be the Mighty Ducks in this movie. So, you know, new Charlie, you could tell he's kind of he's kind of a chubby kid. You know, his mom is is late for work; she's being held back because you know she. People are taking advantage of her she's not the lawyer she's the paralegal so she's got to do a lot of the bitch work so he's late to the ducks practice slash tryout so that's already a bad look you know i grew up playing competitive club hockey where you know you traveled out of state and had to do all the clinics and all that stuff so i know right away that if you're showing up to a tryout you are already got one strike against you you've definitely got to be one of the best kids on the ice. And that just wasn't the case with new Charlie. Like the coach was basically told like the assistant coach, he was like slow on the ice, like slow to get here. He's slow on the ice. So Jace basically saying like, dude, this kid's got like, you know, almost no shot. And of course at the end, you know, new Charlie's held back and the, you know, the coach basically cuts him and he was telling him like, Hey, you're in the new division now. It's 12 to 14. You know, it's a completely different level. And, you know, this is, you know, it's kind of like he had some truths, you know, basically kind of saying, Hey, you just like, can't cut it. You know, Hey, they're, they're the state championship club. You know, it's the top club. Only the best kids are going to be there. He definitely took it a little too far when he told new Charlie that, Hey, I mean, if you're not good at hockey now, then like, don't bother. And that was kind of like, dude, like, what the fuck? Like, you're telling a little 12-year-old kid, like, don't bother? It's like, I mean, I get it. Like, he might not be good enough for your team, but, like, just to be able to tell a kid, like, oh, you're not good at something at, like, 11 or 12-year-old? Then fuck off and try something else. So, obviously, that was kind of a douchebag move. And, you know, Lorelai, his mom, I'm going to call her Lorelai because that's her Gilmore girl's name. and. You know, at that point, every time I see her, she's always going to be Lorelai. So, you know, new Charlie's mom comes out, Lorelai. She comes out, and she's, you know, complaining to the coach, like, how wrong is this? You know, like, these 6 a.m. practices and $1,000 clinics and pointing out to how serious all the other moms are taking it. And I just wanted to point out to Lorelai, it's like, you don't have to go play club hockey for the most competitive team in the state. You know, that's how it's going to be. And, like, there's nothing wrong with, you know, a place for the best of the best to be able to to go because, you know, Lorelai's making a bill, none of these kids are going to go pro and all this stuff, but, you know, considering that this hockey program is the best in Minnesota and that there's tons of kids that come out of Minnesota that either go play NCAA hockey or do eventually get drafted, there might be a good chance that there's, you know, some professional kids that come out of the Mighty Ducks. So, you know, I think she was a little off base and if anything, she was fucking embarrassing. And I'd be so embarrassed if I was new Charlie and sure shit, you know, someone filmed it and she kind of goes viral. So like for the rest of the show, they kind of keep, you know, bagging on her for being like the crazy mom who went on the ice and just completely embarrassed new Charlie. So, you know, it's kind of like I have, really zero sympathy for him getting cut because he wasn't good enough i have more sympathy for well the coach being a dickhead and saying don't bother and then i have sympathy for his mom just being completely fucking embarrassing you know playing like i said playing competitive travel club hockey there were plenty of times where i got cut you know there was times where you know i remember trying out for the westminster wave and that was kind of like the you know, the, the the club in Southern California that would win state championships and go to Canada and win nationals and all that stuff. And I remember being held on the ice with a couple of kids and being told like, don't come back, like you're cut. It hurts, but you know, you grow from it. So, you know, what Lorelai did was I felt like, you know, kind of shitty and she kind of learns, you know, from that a little later on the show from who, you know, our good fucking buddy Gordon Bombay. You know, Gordon Bombay, he's running this run-down rink. You know, Lorelai finds the rink when she's basically trying to get, you know, New Charlie to form a new hockey team. And I guess all New Charlie has to do is get five other kids, <clears throat> have a home rink, and a coach. So, you you know, the little fat white pod, uh, like podcaster kid you know, he joins on, and he even says, I'm not really much of an asset physically. He has more of a podcaster body. That was probably the first time I openly laughed during the show. It was pretty funny. And uh, so, you know, we got New Charlie. We got Podcaster Kid, who's got a jalopy body and no athletic sense, but at least they've got, you know, two people down, just need four more people. Lorelei went and found a rink and found, you know, that's be, happens to be run by the Minnesota Miracle Man, Gordon Bombay. So things seem to be going together and you know it just seems like everything's coming into place you know the charlie and or new charlie and little podcaster kid they're practicing shooting like tennis balls into a trash can and also a new neighbor moves in sheer shit it's a it's a canadian kid he walks out with his toronto maple leafs jersey he's got expensive nice like bauer skates and they point it out and they're like oh my god even the podcaster kid he's like oh this kid's magnificent and it's just definitely implying that this kid's gonna be a stud and you know when i first saw him i was like oh this is gonna be one of those cases where he's gonna be really good realizes he joined the complete bender team and he's gonna end up wanting to go play for the ducks (laughs) they pulled a curveball on us he fucking shows up to practice he can't even skate so new charlie he's completely like oh fuck this like this is a dumb idea we suck like this is not gonna work and you know and he's telling his mom like i'm getting bullied because of that viral video and she's like oh i'm gonna go down to that school and give him a piece of my mind and he's just like dude do not like you're gonna embarrass me even more and you know scumbag coach bombay coming by who he's eating leftover cake because that's what he does apparently when birthday parties when they leave and they leave over half the cake he just will walk around and just keep eating it and he basically tells laura like yo you can't just like keep fighting his battles like if he really wants to play hockey, he'll make it happen. So he's got to go do it. And, you know, Gordon Bombay, you know, that little bit of motivation, that was enough for him to, you know, make new Charlie stand up at a school, give an epic speech. And now you got a ragtag bunch of kids who don't know how to play hockey, but at least he's got a team together. You know, there's even a fat goalie. So we got a Goldberg character and he at least looks like he knows how to play goalie. I mean, he looks like he's, completely unathletic but he's also uh they just started throwing a bunch of trash at him and he didn't let that go by so i feel like at least he's not afraid of stuff like goldberg was you know he got a couple kids he got a goofy magic the gathering girl you got a kid that the only thing that gives an inclination that he might be good at hockey as he likes to skateboard and slam into vending machines so you know there's definitely going to need to i think their team is going to have to find a couple other ringers or maybe a person or two from the tucks to hopefully join because the way that they're assembled right now it's not going to be good i feel like you know it's definitely like how the first mighty ducks started they're definitely in their district 5 phase but overall The show was good. I give it a thumbs up. I'm looking forward to watching it every Friday. I'm looking forward to covering this show over the next, I think, like 9 to 10 weeks. I think it's going to be a 10-episode first season. So, you know, if the season, if the first episode is any indication how good the first season is going to be, you know, I think we're on, you know, we're in for a, a pretty decent show. You know, it was a nice trip down Nostalgia Lane and, you know, it was nice having Gordon Bombay back in my life. And, you know, may not be an Anaheim Ducks fan, but I'm definitely a fan of the the Mighty Ducks. And, you know, so tomorrow's show, I'll be covering episode two of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. There's no way I'm going to cover on today's show. I feel like it's definitely run on long enough, but I feel like, you know, it's a nice treat for you here on this Monday morning. So until next time. I am Dean Ryan. This has been a Cali Green Monster show. Anyone that's downloaded and listened to the show, I truly appreciate you. If you enjoyed what you listened to, be a friend, tell a friend. If you didn't enjoy it, just uh, pretend you never listened to it. Like I said, until next time, coming to you from the Tesla studios here in beautiful, sunny San Diego, California. Have a great one, guys. Peace.